The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Uh, good morning, everybody. It is Wednesday, at least I believe it is, and you're watching Scorebox and Easier Headlines. Chinese exports sinking in May, missing forecasts by a wide margin amid growing consumption concerns in the global economy and a weak manufacturing outlook at home in China. Well, despite that, though, earlier on we had the rally on Wall Street rolling on with the S&P 500 and Nasdaq both notching fresh record highs for the year, whilst the VIX touches its lowest intraday level to a 13 handle now since February 2020. The World Bank trims its 2024 global growth forecast as higher rates and tighter credit conditions take a toll. The group's deputy chief economist tells CNBC the global economy remains on precarious footing. One can say, you know, the gloss is how full global economy has been resilient. But at the same time, when you look at the big picture, how weak the growth is, uh, we should be concerned. U.S. regulators tighten their grip on crypto, cracking down on Coinbase while ordering an emergency freeze on all Binance U.S. assets globally. SEC Chair Gary Gensler tells CNBC the sector must be reined in. This is a field that's built. The whole business model is built on non-compliance with the U.S. securities laws. And we're asking them to come into compliance and they're going a bit of catch us if you can. Meanwhile, the PGA Tour agrees to merge with Saudi-backed rival Live Golf, putting to bed months of bad feelings between the rival factions and ending all litigation. PGA Commissioner Jay Monahan tells CNBC the sport will benefit. There's been a lot of tension in our sport over the last couple of years. But what we're talking about today is coming together to unify the game of golf. Right, a very good morning. Good morning, Karen. How are you? Good morning. Very well, thank Lovely you. Lovely to see you. Um, look, um, if the world is looking for a prop at the moment, where is it going to find it? I say the world, I mean your world, markets. Are they going to find it in valuation? Uh, not so sure. Are you going to find it in the interest rate story, the fact that they're coming off in the state? Well, maybe not, actually, given what we saw on payroll last week and what we're hearing from the likes of Jefferson and others as well. Are we going to find it in the great driver of growth in the globe in the last two decades, China? I don't think so. Have a look at these data. Chinese exports tumbled far more than expected in May, down 7.5% on the year, much worse than the forecast 0.4% fall. Imports sank less than forecast, whilst the trade surplus narrowly uh, narrowed sharply. Well, let's get to Sam. Uh, Sam, lovely to see you this morning. I notice you're resplendent in pink, as indeed is Karen. Nobody gave me the memo. Um, but anyway, more importantly than that, what about this data? I was going to say you missed the memo, Steve, but the data is telling us a few things, certainly about external demand, but also the domestic picture over in China. As you pointed out, it was interesting because, of course, Jemana having that conversation with the World Bank uh, as well, and they were touching on this, that it is very much a services sector concentrated recovery at the moment, and that's not really the kind of growth that is going to have spillover effects hugely for the global economy, particularly at a time when many economies are looking to China to really, you know, pull the weight 
wait here. So this is why a lot of the data has been disappointing. So this is just further confirmation day of the, uh, today of the uneven and lopsided recovery playing out. Um, when it comes to those exports, they fell greater than the market was expecting. So we got around a 7.5% decline. Actually, it's interesting when you look in UN terms, not as deep of a decline, uh, which means there could have been some currency effect there, given what we've seen, certainly with the US dollar and the UN over the last uh, month or so. But what this is telling us is a few things. We know that external demand uh, is slowing down. It suggests that these factories are catching up now with the backlog of the orders, drawing down on inventories, of course, that we had seen at the back end of last year when China was still in zero COVID. But perhaps more importantly, what it's telling us is that external demand perhaps isn't going to be enough to uh, sustain the recovery. Uh, Although we were just talking to Goldman Sachs a little early and they seem to be a bit more optimistic on the overseas demand story. But another red flag for those exports over in China are imports because a lot of that material that's brought into the country is then re-exported. And what we saw with those imports was another decline, not as deep as the market was expecting but it was still another contraction. And we had got some clues about this, of course, in other regional data in the last few weeks or so. You only had to look at South Korean exports, which are a good indicator of Chinese imports, to see that they were down for a 12th month, around 21%. So what we're seeing is that commodities like coal, uh, imports of that material were down. That was on weaker demand uh, and higher inventories. Now, with the export numbers, we also had some some clues uh, from the latest PMI numbers, uh, certainly when you look at that sub-index for new export orders. So all in all, I think you could say that the data we got today isn't hugely surprising uh, given some of the forward indicators that we've been seeing already in the month of May, guys. Sam, there is a view that you will see a pivot back to the domestic market, uh, given that there's such weakness in the global economy at this point. But can I just probe that a little bit further? Because the stats, the numbers suggest that the pent up savings there are are quite slim. By comparison, China equal to 3% of GDP, the amount of excess savings that uh, the economy is sitting on versus 10% in the United States. Already there are concerns about the savings in the US dwindling down post-COVID with the length of time, the pressures. Uh, The 3% level in China, much lower than that 10% in the state. So surely that is not a go-to for the Chinese authorities at this point. Yeah, it's interesting because the services sector resilience that we've seen and that boost we've seen to consumption certainly is good news if China is trying to mitigate some of those softer exports. But what we've seen in terms of the main numbers is that was largely helped by that long holiday that we saw. The big question now is just how sustainable that's going to be once everybody goes back to work. Because as you pointed out, Karen, savings are up. And just to highlight how concerned the authorities are, are about this at the moment. They're now asking the banks to cut deposit rates. They're trying to unleash all that pent-up savings uh, that people have been holding on to over the last three years because of zero COVID. So I think that just goes to highlight that they are very much focused uh, on this at the moment and they are certainly wondering as to how Uh, whether this consumption story has legs at the moment, given that Chinese people are holding back on their spending, particularly when you look at big ticket items like 
housing and cars and even things like mobile phones for that matter. Back to you guys. Uh, lovely to see you. And uh, from the thorn between two roses, uh, as I say, nobody told me you guys were, were coordinating today. Looking absolutely resplendent, both pink of you. Pink day today. Is it pink day? Is Apparently it something to pink. celebrate? <laughs> I like pink. I've got a beautiful pink tie. <laughs> Missed opportunity is what it says. Never mind. What about these markets? Lovely to see you, Sam. Yeah, Thank you. I just want to pick up on that point around the the, ex point? the amount of excess savings. I mean, 3% out of GDP in, in China right. versus 10% in the United States. I mean, we were having a, a terrific conversation over the weekend at the IMF as to whether fiscal policy could holiday. step in rather than monetary policy. Obviously, uh, a huge question mark around whether Triple R gets moved again, whether you see interest rates also tackled by the PBOC. Mm. But it could actually be fiscal this time around, because if you think about that 3%, how do you stimulate domestic demand if already those numbers are lower? And this was a point that we were looking at on the back of uh, the COVID reopening, that not as much money had been handed out to the Chinese economy as what you'd seen in Western economies, namely in the United States. So there may not be as much firepower to unleash on spending, that revenge spending that we've seen in the West. So yeah. by numbers, it's, it's potentially there. Yeah, I mean, I, agreed. I, I, I think they're in a conundrum, and I think they're in a, a delicious conundrum, which we've talked about ever since we've had concerns about the Chinese property market, which, as we keep saying, was, a was one of the biggest drivers of growth, not only for China, but for the planet, with the amount of resources that it sucked in from the global economy. If you haven't got that as a prop now, you've got a problem. One difference I would have with you is, is a slight tautology change. In fact, you said pivot back to the Chinese consumer, I think when you said when you were talking mm. to Sam. But, but it wasn't ever a pivot back because it was about the growth story. The growth story was about exports, about the engine of growth for the global economy, the manufacturing industrial hub. They've only just turned uh, to the Chinese consumer rather than going back to it as well. And they're hoping they're going to see some burgeoning Chinese consumer. But you've got a consumer with ageing demographics. You've got a consumer uh, who actually is concerned uh, about their social security safety nets and who will want to save more as well. And I don't know if it's a consumer that actually wants to spend money, that actually wants to help the government out with its demographics demographic issue as well. Uh, and so I think, you know, dare I say it, the, the other uh, area where they can perhaps boost uh, the economy is by raising more debt. And that is what has been behind the Chinese rallying very aggressively on their debt to GDP, getting up to Western and beyond Western standards. And that has got to be a bigger problem. Yeah, the old playbook. Uh, I just make a final point here, though, around the consumer. We've seen question marks over luxury in Europe in recent weeks, uh, some of it on the valuation, but some of it on this strength of the reopening of China theme. And, you know, if the savings rate is not that strong and if we've got corporate profits being challenged, which we've seen in recent numbers, then where is the strength for the luxury business in Europe? Is it going to be somewhat underwhelming at this stage, despite what we've seen over a recent number of years? Yeah, and if people don't believe me about the debt levels in China, I'll just remind you of the absolute facts. Uh, we haven't got the second quarter data in, but at the end of the first quarter, how Households are now 63.6% debt to GDP. That is two and a half percentage points higher than where they were in 2022 at the same period. Uh, corporate non-financial debt has now surged to 163.7% on a debt to GDP basis. Again, it was uh, around about eight percentage points higher than it was a year earlier. Government debt has gone up by six percentage points in one year period. And the financial sector actually has been slightly better. That is one area of, of light where elsewhere uh, the debts have increase gone down to 45% of debt to GDP compared with 47%. So if you add all those up, you're talking about huge, 
huge levels of debt and that makes it more difficult to stimulate as we all know because in the higher inflationary environment you have higher servicing costs unless as Karen was saying you've got the triple R remaining low because the Chinese are very worried about raising those uh, interest rates because they worry what it's going to do to the economy. Chasing 5% growth this year could come at a cost for the Chinese. Let me take you to what we're seeing on those US markets. Not much action actually the lack of news the lack of information this week just giving us somewhat of a a trading pattern so that is uh, somewhat uh, slim. You can see barely any movement on the Dow, 10 points, uh, barely a flicker on that uh, percentage swing, a quarter of a percent on the S&P 500. So a little bit more movement there. Some of the big moving names, Alphabet for both the S&P and also for the Nasdaq. But again, this goes back to uh, the point that's been made. Very slim number of stocks uh, connecting, making any difference for the fortunes of the major indices. Also on the cusp of moving back into bull market territory, given the bounce we've seen from correction levels. So I think uh, the signal closely watched at this point. In terms of some of the performers yesterday, it was actually the banks. We saw the KBE gaining 4.3%, very strong performance there. Financials leading the market forward, 1.3% bounce versus healthcare, one of the weaker links. Now, the VIX, what we have seen, uh, the lows chased here, and you can see sub-14 now, another slump yesterday on the fear gauge, uh, coming off uh, to the tune of uh, more than 5%. So something about complacency settling into this market and some of those fears evaporating to treasuries as we also take stock of how the bond market is viewing the potential for interest rate hikes from here. I mean, there's been so much noise, the hop, the skip, the the pause in June, somewhat uh, part of the narrative. But what comes next is where the question marks still remain. We are just uh, around the four and a half percent level on the short end to the longer end. You can see we're at three point six six. The dollar, the trade around foreign exchange this morning, We've got a lot of these currencies on the back foot versus the dollar, which seems to be king this morning. 124.17 on sterling, which is a weaker trade. Euro also back below the 107 handle. So fair amount of slippage in the last 24 hours or so. The dollar yen rates are looking a little bit weaker. Safe haven yen has it 139.31 and dollar supported versus the yuan. WTI Brent Gold, the uh, complex for commodities. Brent and WTI again showing further downward movement. Six tenths off Brent uh, around the 75.80 handle. 71.30 on WTI. The gold movement seems somewhat steady at this point. Again, back to that barbell approach where investors are a little bit concerned about how much risk to put on the table. They're offsetting with some of the safe haven trades. Gold seems to be just holding at these levels. Asian markets in session today. Uh, this is how it plays out. Japanese stocks having a rare downbeat day after all the gains we continue to witness, but uh, we're still holding above 32,100 points. Weakness uh, cropping up for parts of the Chinese market. You can see not much movement for the Shanghai Composite, despite a great green patch on the boards today. Cosby in South Korea is bouncing up a quarter of 1%. Steve. Thanks, Karen. Okay, the World Bank projects global economic growth will decelerate to 2.1% this year, down from 3.1% last year. The group says high interest rates have put the world economy in a precarious position. Tightening credit conditions are also starting to hit emerging markets, with one economy in four effectively losing access to international bond markets. I find that extraordinary. Is that actually the case? I'm going to go back on that again. One in four economies losing access to international bond markets. I find that quite extraordinary as well. Uh, the World Bank's Deputy Chief Economist, uh, Ayan Koza, told CNBC the downward pressure is coming from everywhere. Advanced economies have been quite resilient, but they will slow down this year and their growth rate will be around 0.7%. And then look at emerging market developing economies. 
there, uh, thanks to the contribution of China, the aggregate suggests that there is an uptick in growth. But if you take out China there as well, growth will slow down from 4% to 3%. So all in all, there is a slowdown in the global economy. And 70% of countries will see slower growth this year than last year. And what is prompting that global slowdown? Is it simply because we are in a much higher interest rate environment? How much of it can be pinpointed back to monetary financing? Uh, I think the interest rates, uh, you know, uh, have been increased uh, significantly. We are going through the fastest and steepest tightening cycle of the past four decades. And that has been increasingly felt around the world. And that plays, of course, an important role. I thought what you said about uh, EMDEs, uh, quite interesting, emerging markets, developing economies, you have a growth projection as a whole at 4%. But if you remove China, it's actually only 2.9%. So to what extent do you think China has been lifting or supporting global growth prospects at this point? Uh, China has been playing a significant role uh, after it is reopening. Of course, there were uh, expectations that China would really deliver uh, much higher growth. But increasingly, we see that China's growth is driven by domestic consumption and especially services sector. And it's not the type of, you know, growth that will have huge spillovers for the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, but we are hopeful that China will sustain this growth. But in general, the weakness, the weakness is there. Mm. It's interesting you say that because definitely the market narrative in the last couple of weeks has changed. People are beginning to be a little bit concerned about the pace of the recovery that's coming out of China. There appears to be a moderation if you look at some of the official indicators. Would you say that that also is a supportive of your own outlook for China and, and how growth is going to pan out in the second half of the year? Indeed, we see that high-frequency indicators suggesting a slowdown, not in China, in many places in the world. You see that, uh, you know, when you look at the earning calls of companies. Um, I think this weakness will be with us uh, in the second half of the year, and next year it will continue. We are expecting a kind of a recovery next year in the global economy, but that's going to be a tepid one. Yeah. The important point to remember is the following. Uh, this year, global economy will deliver growth lower than what we saw in 2010s on average. This is true for advanced economies, and it's true for emerging market developing economies. One can say, you know, the gloss is how full global economy has been resilient. But at the same time, when you look at the big picture, how weak the growth is, uh, we should be concerned. Coming up on the show, a dam collapsed in Ukraine puts tens of thousands at risk from flooding as both sides in the conflict blame each other. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts.
Uh, the U.S. reportedly received intelligence from a European ally that a Ukraine Special Forces team reporting directly to the Commander-in-Chief made plans to blow up the Nord Stream gas pipelines three months before it actually happened. And evidence found by German investigators shows similarities with these plans. This according to the Washington Post, which cites documents shared on the chat site Discord as part of the Pentagon leaks in April. NBC News has not seen the reports or documents, uh, nor been able to independently verify the information. And there has been no response to requests for information from the U.S. intelligence community. Ukraine denies any responsibility for the attack, and the documents do not say these plans were acted upon. Elsewhere, Ukraine says more than 40,000 people are at risk from flooding after the Karkovka dam collapsed early Monday, with Ukrainian and Russian forces blaming each other for its destruction. UN aid chief Martin Griffiths uh, says the collapse will have, quote, grave and far-reaching consequences for thousands of people as the flooding is expected to peak today. Let's get to Timothy Milovanov, who is president of the Kiev School of Economics and former Minister of Economic Development, Trade and Agriculture of Ukraine. Uh, very good to see you today, sir. Thank you very much indeed for having the time to join us. Just... Um, Let's start at the basics here. Just tell us exactly what is going on on the ground down in the south of Ukraine after the, the breaching of this dam, sir. Tens of villages and cities and towns are under flooding. This flooding is um, severe. In some places, the water levels uh, increased by as much as three meters. Um, and that basically would submerge for one floor houses or sometimes even smaller, you know, one and a half floors of the houses. Uh, people are being evacuated uh, and uh, that's thousands of people and tens of thousands are under risk. So we understand that there'll be a stabilization in those flood levels at some stage this morning or later on today as well. Uh, is there a possibility then it will recede and the ramifications will be shorter lived or would it be as some um, concerned critics have said this will create some form of ecocide which will last for many days, weeks and months to come? Both uh, arguments uh, are correct. Uh, the water will start subsiding soon, but in some areas, depending on geography, um, it uh, might continue to rise, actually. And there is a, a expectation that there'll be a reverse flooding up the rivers in Gulets and Bug, and it might take up to two weeks um, for that to reach uh, some additional cities and villages. Um, it's just such a massive territory and 18 billion cubic meters of water in this reservoir. The size of the Kahovka dam or the water it holds is comparable to let's say salt lake or it's not quite the great lakes in midwest but uh, i've sailed on these lakes and when you're in the middle you can you can see either side Timothy, can I ask you about the uh, further environmental implications here? Because there is a view that uh, some of the uh, lubricants uh, from the uh, industrial facility could actually impact fertile ground. This is territory that is known to be uh, largely part of the agriculture story coming out of Ukraine, already international concerns around food shortages. What could the potential impact be? Oh, absolutely. There are at least three 
uh, important ingredients to the ecological impact. First of all, there is irrigation system which uh, feeds into most of the south of Ukraine in three regions. And that irrigation system is severely distorted and damaged now because it was taking water exactly from this Kahovka reservoir. So we might be seeing real difficulty with uh, planting and harvesting crops south of Ukraine. Second, there is contamination, absolutely. Contamination coming from the dam itself. There are 150 tons of uh, oil or maybe more, depending on different reports. Um, and that is going to be toxic and it's going to pollute water, including drinking water potentially. And then the third aspect of this is that there is this um, ground um, kind of dirt which has accumulated uh, next to the dam over years and could be all kinds of toxic uh, heavy metals and even radiation from chernobyl although it's i think a distant possibility um and now it is all exposed and it's going to go down the river downstream to the areas which are ecologically important uh, and it all will end up in the black sea quite soon you mentioned radiation uh, in that uh, answer. Let me ask you about the nuclear plant because there are concerns around the water supplies coming in to cool the plant. Uh, the IEA, uh, IAEA rather, has uh, mentioned that there's no immediate risk, but there are concerns around just stabilization given how much pressure employees are already under, given that uh, this is under control of the Russians at this stage. Absolutely. The Zaporizhia plant is um, on the left bank of the river north or upstream from Kachovka. And what is happening is that there is a cooling reservoir which takes water from uh, the Kachovka reservoir. Now Kachovka reservoir is gonna uh, be depleted. And uh, um, in the meantime, there is enough water in this reservoir to maintain, to operate Kachovka, uh, not Kachovka, Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. But what will happen over time, especially when the pressures will change, uh, there could be potential structural damage to that, uh, to that Zaporizhia nuclear plant reservoir. Um, that has to be monitored. Uh, the situation could develop there. But for now, uh, it is absolutely correct that there is no immediate threat. Timothy, um, on my first visit to Ukraine, gosh, you must be going back a decade now almost as well, I learned very quickly the importance of agriculture and this stunningly rich organic soil that is agriculture and the soil of Ukraine, a huge, huge percentage of exports. And we've seen uh, how the tumult of the war has affected that uh, and indeed the theft of supplies from Russia and in grain deals. It's just absolutely pivotal for your country and its economic um, well, economic well-being as well. Just what is the latest situation in terms of the broader situation, what this flooding will do uh, to the ability uh, of Ukraine to reap harvests? Uh, you, uh, you're correct here. Uh, Ukrainian agriculture products are substantive, about half, uh, sometimes even more in some years of export uh, of Ukraine. And we are an open economy, uh, about 50% of our GDP is international trade. So it's critical for us. But it is also, also critical for the world because Ukraine provided food security to about 400 million people, especially in global south prior to the war. Now, with the blockade of the ports, with the mine contamination during to the war, and now with additional ecological and water contamination in the south, uh, I think uh, we should be expecting the outputs to fall and the food security in the region to worsen and the prices to grow. In fact, we have already seen that the some of the cereal prices went up as high as 3% on the news of uh, Kahovka. 
Tim Fee, just quickly, uh, some of the analysts are pointing out this may be a retaliation for attacks behind enemy lines in Russia itself. Do you think that's what we're looking at here, that this is retaliation by the Russians potentially if they are responsible? It's difficult to glance into the mind of a Russian now. Uh, but I think it's also a sign that they are desperate because they uh, have flooded their own defense lines and a lot of people died. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.